Thanks for joining us. The following is a presentation of Ignite Global Ministries and features the teaching of Pastor Ben Dixon. Pastor Ben has a vision of strengthening the church to impact the world. He serves as lead pastor at Northwest Foursquare Church in Federal Way, Washington. Turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 1. Come on, we're starting a sermon series today, the book of Mark, and I would tell you that it's going to take us probably about eight to nine months. Amen. It's about as long as it takes to have a child. So we hope at the end of this, something wonderful will come about. (laughs) Not comparable, you understand, but... I really do believe that God's word will equip us and instruct us as we open this today. We're calling the sermon series, or we're just calling this, uh, as we go through the book of the Bible here, uh, the book in the Bible, the book of Mark, we're calling it On Mission with Jesus. We're going to study the first eight verses together, and that's really the, the sermon title, On Mission with Jesus. We're embarking on a mission today. So let's just pray again as we open God's word. Father, we do thank you for your word. And we pray now that as we study it and read it, more than just knowing it, we pray, Lord, that we would desire to live it. And we would make no excuses as we read it saying, well, that's back in the past and that was for them and that was to someone. And Lord, we just pray that the truth of these words would jump into our hearts and we would desire to obey you with all that we are. All that we say and do would be yours. And so as we read it, we surrender also to the truth of it. And we ask you to come and equip and encourage and instruct us. Use this time. Use this time to further us and to refresh us. Refresh your people today as we study the Bible. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as we do open up the book of Mark, or really any book of the Bible for that matter, it's important to give somewhat of an introduction or an overview, which is really what I want to do today before we read the first eight verses. And I want to remind you that the book of Mark is one of the gospel accounts, and there are four of them. We know there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, And John and these four gospel accounts have four different writers. The writer of the book of Mark is Mark, or otherwise known as John Mark. And it's important that we know why there are four gospel accounts. A person could ask the question, why are there four of them and why are they different? Well, they're not all that much different, but it's important to recognize that when you think about these gospel accounts, that they're all the recordings of the life and the teachings and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ from different people's perspective under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And while they're all recording the same event, the details are obvious because they all are sharing it from their perspective. It'd be very similar today that if somebody over here pulled out their phone and somebody in this section and this section and that section, everybody pulled out their phone and began to take a video recording, a five-minute clip of this service and you just move your, you move your camera around and you capture different people and you capture different aspects from a different vantage point. And if you take all five of those clips and you put them together, there's going to be different parts from each clip. But if you put them together, you have a full picture of the same event. 
And that's actually what it's like when you think of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's really the same event. It's a recording of the same things, but it's from a different vantage point. And there are some details that uh, would differ, or there's an, Mark is an expedited gospel account, is the way I would put it. And so when we look at the book of Mark, we need to know that it's one of the synoptic gospels. The synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And they're about 75 to 80% the same. Now, Mark is a little bit different, as they all are, because it's written from a different author's perspective, but the book of John is almost 85% different, because he picks up a part of the story or a part of the account and brings to us many things that are not written in the other gospel accounts. We know the writer of the gospel is Mark, but in the scriptures, sometimes you'll read his name as John Mark, because you have his Hebrew name, and then his also given name that is translated in Greek, and now we have it in English. But Mark was a cousin of Barnabas. We know that from Colossians chapter 4 and verse 10. And he accompanied Barnabas and Paul on their first missionary journey. We see that in Acts chapter 12. He had a dispute at some point with the Apostle Paul, and then they were restored back to relationship. So Mark is somebody that's well known in the Bible. He's not a guy that we've never heard of. He's not a guy that isn't recorded. He's a person that we know of, but he's not an apostle, and he was not an eyewitness of the Lord Jesus. And so we see in church history, there's at least three significant church historians that tell us that Mark was an interpreter for the apostle Peter. And so he is the, Peter's the primary or even the sole resource for him writing this account since he wasn't there and he wasn't an apostle or an eyewitness. Sometimes people will refer to the gospel of Mark as the gospel according to Peter scribed by Mark. Now, some think that Mark was led to the Lord by Peter and discipled by him because in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 13, you read, Peter calls him his son. And this was obviously an affectionate term, and he meant it probably because he discipled him in the faith. The book of Mark is widely accepted as the earliest gospel written to a Roman audience under great persecution, which I will talk about in just a little bit. But it's the shortest gospel account of the four. And there's some things that we need to know that differ from the others, and one of those is the Gospel of Mark contains no details of the birth of Christ whatsoever. We'll see the difference here in a moment. The Gospel of Mark leaves out many of the prophetic predictions that you find mostly in Matthew and also in the book of Luke. And we also note as you read it, as you just read it in a few sittings even, that the pace of the book is extremely fast. It moves from one scene to another rather quickly. And one of the most important Greek words that's used is euthus, is how you would say that, euthus. And this word is translated immediately, or it's translated straightway. 42 times it's in the book of Mark. It's only 12 times in the entire New Testament. So here when you're reading about the life and the ministry of Jesus, it goes from one scene, and then it says, and immediately they went over to this other place. Well, he didn't just get in the boat and fly. That's not how that works. There was no magic carpet. It's just a scene change. But he moves from one scene to another, and I believe there's a reason for it when you think about who originally was reading the gospel who originally it was given to. And that's actually a very important piece of studying the Bible. Whenever we study scripture, unfortunately, we live in a time of devotionals. Now, I'm not trying to come against you and your devotional time, and some of you will read a, a devotional, and you're going to say, Pastor Ben, don't mess with my devotionals, but just give me a moment, I'm going to mess with them. 
And what, what, what happens is when you read a devotional book and it has one passage that it plucks out of a context, sometimes we actually end up misinterpreting it to get something out of it that we need or that we want or that encourages us. The problem with that is it might be a wrong interpretation of that verse. And so the best thing that we can do is we study the Bible. You don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to have a Bible college degree. You just have to have a little bit more time to ask some questions. Who wrote this? Who did they write it to? Why did they write it? What was the framework or the context for which the original reader would be thinking when they read it? And then under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we can extrapolate the principles and the truths of what is written there that are timeless, and we can apply them to our lives. But without a proper understanding of context and historicity, it's going to be very difficult for us to get the truth out of it. We don't want to be misappropriately interpreting something. And so we're going to do our best as we walk through the book of Mark together to have the proper interpretation. And where I don't know something, I'm just going to tell you, I don't know. And that's going to happen a few times. I hope you know that, right? One time a person said to me, well, we don't want to know that our pastor doesn't know. Well, I'm going to tell you up front, sometimes your pastor doesn't know. That's just the way it is. I don't know. I think, is there a church out there where a pastor knows everything? Okay. All right. So I just wasn't sure. I was because the comment, you know, came that is sort of, that might be the indication there. When it comes to a writing style, I sort of look at the Gospels this way. I think Matthew is sort of like a theologian. Luke is a historian. John is an evangelist because at the end of John's Gospel, John tells us, and these things were written so that you might know that Jesus is the Son of God. Here he is an evangelist, and clearly he's connecting the deity of Christ to all of the stories and the entire account of Jesus' life and ministry. But when you look at Mark, he reminds me of a journalist, He sort of gives you the cliff notes with the vivid details, and he brings you into these scenarios like they're present tense, like he wants people to feel what is happening. He wants to, he writes in such a way where you're right there with him, and it's almost like this literally happened yesterday. It's sort of how you feel. In fact, I was reflecting on my teaching of the Bible for the time that I've been in in vocational ministry, and I was thinking about how so many of the stories of Jesus I teach from the book of Mark, and I didn't realize it until I really sat down and started started studying over the last two months this book, and I thought, man, I think this guy is like my pace, and I resonate with his style because that's sort of how I feel. Some people, you know who you are. You're like the sit-down theologian type. Others, it's all about history and culture, and a few of you are just evangelists. You love the book of John, and you tell everybody to read the book of John. It's like, I just want you to know Jesus Christ is real. You know, you just sort of get to the, get to the place where that's really what it's all about, but Mark, he's just giving like the cliff notes. It's the abbreviated version of the gospel. And I love it because I'm a straight shooter and I get right to the point and I resonate very much with Mark and have had a self-discovery over the last period of time where I've studied. I love here how there's an urgency in Mark immediately. There's an urgency. You get right into the story of Jesus's life, his death, his resurrection. He's moving somewhere. He wants to take you there. He wants us to know it. And as we study this, I pray that we would pick up that urgency, amen, that we would pick up an urgency to know Christ and to make him known. And with that said, let's read the first eight verses of the book of Mark together. And here's what it says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God, as as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, the voice of one or the voice of another crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
And all the country of Judea was going out to him. Just for a moment, it doesn't mean every person in Judea came out to him. It's just a, it's a way of saying many people. It's an exaggerative way of saying many people. All of the country of Judea was going out to him. And all the people of Jerusalem, this is just lots of people, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching, and he was saying this, After me there is one coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptized you with water, but he, meaning Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And with these eight verses, I want to sort of look at them through three, or three topics that I think are important here. And the first is we want to talk about verse 1. What is the gospel? He starts by saying, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This verse is literally the theme of the entire book of Mark, in which we know right away it is all about Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word here, the beginning is meant to connect us to Genesis chapter 1, where it reads, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It also connects us to the book of John, which also similarly connects to Genesis chapter 1. In the book of John, it talks about in the beginning, the word was with God and the word was God. So he absolutely means to connect these terms. The gospel of Jesus, though, provides a new beginning for humanity because of what we lost through our own sin. The word gospel means good news and is sometimes translated great news. Everybody just say today, good news. news. Didn't it feel good to say it? Kind of? Not so much. Okay. The word means good news and there are many places to begin sharing the good news of Jesus. Mark starts the beginning of the gospel with the proclamation of John the Baptist. And that's what we're going to go into in a moment. That's where he starts telling the good news of Jesus. The Gospel of Luke starts the Gospel with the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus and shares with us the genealogy. Matthew starts the Gospel with the genealogy of Jesus, stretching from Abraham to David and then to Jesus. And the Gospel of John goes all the way back to creation. Well, Mark starts with the proclamation of John in the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus. And then he says, the Son of God. But no matter where you start telling the Gospel... It is always about Jesus the Christ. Now, can I remind you, especially as we get to chapter 8, there's a pivotal chapter and verse there where the disciples are certain that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, they walk with him for a period of time where they're not totally sure. They think he's the Messiah. They're not sure that he's Messiah. In chapter 8, it's certain he is the Messiah. He reveals himself. It is very clear to them at that point. And chapter 8 is a hinge. I preached about this before. Jesus is the Christ. The word Christ means anointed or anointed one. Christ is not his last name. Amen. It's not like somebody could have the last name Christ. When we say Jesus Christ, we're saying Jesus, the anointed one, and we're referring to him being the long-awaited Messiah that the Jewish people were waiting for. There are hundreds of years where they're waiting for their Messiah, even thousands where the prophecies would be given. This gospel is about Jesus the Christ. Mark intended to proclaim the gospel already known and experienced by the Roman believers And he wanted to root the gospel in the life and the teachings of Jesus. And you have to understand that the gospel of Mark was released somewhere around A.D. 65. 
65 AD. That's what most scholars believe. It could have been 66. But they all believe that it was after a significant historical event. That significant historical event was in 64 AD. And if you know what happened, it's called the Great Fires of Rome. This is where the Emperor Nero, who was a maniac, he was psychotic, he goes into a psychotic compulsive rage and he has the whole city of Rome set on fire. Some would say 60% of Rome burned to the ground. It burned for seven days straight. The city of Rome burned. Now, many knew that it was Nero, and, and most historians would tell you that it was common knowledge, and so they were probably going to take his life and execute Nero. But Nero did something very convenient. He blamed it on the Christians. And when he blamed it on the Christians, Christians then, in Rome especially, and throughout the known world, were dragged out of their homes, were executed. Many of them were driven into catacombs and into caves. They had to live underground. If you've read the, the latter part of Hebrews, you know that what the Christians had to go through. And he would do all kinds of crazy things, bring them into the Colosseum. He would take out, they would take out the wild beasts, the lions and the tigers. And for sport, the Christians were killed in front of all the people in the Colosseum that were bloodthirsty to see this happen. And they believed that this was sort of righteous because the Christians were responsible for burning the city of Rome. This is the persecution that they were experiencing. So imagine this. This is why it's important for us to recognize this was the first gospel that was released. When they got the gospel in AD 65 or 66, all of the Christians in Rome specifically were experiencing great persecution. So when they gathered around to read this, you can imagine that they were losing heart. You can imagine that they were deeply discouraged and some of them were probably losing their faith because when you suffer and when we go through difficulty, sometimes we begin to lose sight of what the truth is. We begin to lose strength of what it is that we're standing for and what it is that we're saying. And so when they gathered around, whether they were in a, a cave or the catacombs or they were outside the city or they were underground, you can imagine they gathered around to read the gospel of Mark and every story that they read about Jesus's life and teachings and ministry, it strengthened them. They were already Christians, but it started to strengthen them. And then they wanted to make this Jesus known and they begin to light up, even in suffering, even in persecution. Now they're beginning to light up. Jesus is real. The one that we've believed is true. The one that heals the sick. The one that delivers people of demons. Come on. The one that gives hope. The one that is alive and well. The one that we've put all of our life's hope in. This story is really true. This is really true. Jesus is alive. It encouraged suffering believers. Now we read it today. And we can read it and we can teach it and we can go through it in a year. And, we, and, and sometimes maybe we, we don't read it, but we've got every Bible translation known to man. You can pop up your app or your mobile device. You've got many Bibles in your home. I'm certain of it. I know I won't ask for a show of hands. I know you do. But we've got so many Bibles and we've got so many different versions of the Gospel of Mark that we can just read and, and, and not have to even worry about persecution we've never even touched in our country. We haven't even touched it yet, this kind of persecution that they're suffering. And, 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 and yet we have to sort of try to at least step into their thinking. Maybe we can't step into their experience, but we've got to step into their thinking and realize how and become grateful for what we have in the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, he's, met, he's meaning to set the, this straight, and it helps us to understand those who first read it so that we can properly grasp it for ourselves. It was prophesied that a Messiah would come. He did come. 
He willingly died on a cross, taking death in our place, forgiving the sins of all who come to him in faith and repentance. This is the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what he intends to encourage people with. I begin to think about the word gospel, good news. I, I started thinking on just a natural level what good news is in, in my life or how I think about good news. Because we're living in a world where you turn on the news and it's not the good news. And as long as I've been alive, it's kind of been like that, but it seems like it's progressively gotten worse. That almost nothing good is happening in the world and Christians come together and we can smile at each other because there is something good. In fact, there's something great in the midst of anything that we can experience. Think about the suffering that they're going through. Not a lot of good news externally, not a lot of good news naturally, but this is the good news. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is, this is the good news. So I begin to think in my life about what is good news. What do I consider good? And, and I thought when I was a kid, just going back, some of you are young in the room. When I was a kid, it was like a, good news was when a, a friend would come over and stay the night. It was good news. Or come on, let's be honest. It was good news when, when I was going to somebody else's house. You know, that's how my kids feel. And they're not here today, so I can talk about them as much as I want. They don't watch the live stream, so. Yes, it's good news. I'm going to a friend's house. Praise God. He answered my prayers. You know, that's how they get excited. You know, it's good news. When I was a kid, it was such a treat to go to the movie theater. I don't know if you relate to that, but like we didn't get to go very often. Um, some did, but when we went and it cost, you know, it was a little more affordable we would go, we were so excited, it was good news, we're going to the movie theater, man, we get to go see Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, did anybody else see Teenage, I'm dating, my, I'm only 41, so that was a big deal, you know, we got to go see Vanilla Ice in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, it was, a, you had to be about a certain age, you know, some of you would know because you took your kids and, and they're about my age. But I remember I was going to get the juju fruits and the popcorn was $100 that you spill everywhere. Who cares? Get free Phillips, you know. It's like $100 now. You know, it's a pound of flesh and your firstborn. I mean, it's really expensive today. You don't know even, you know, it's, uh, do we even go to the movie theaters anymore? I told my kids, that's, that ship has sailed, man. We bought a 65-inch LED screen. That is your movie theater. That's all, that's all you get, right? We went to Trader Joe's. We got you some honey pretzels. You get a sparkling water. You can sit back in the recliner. There's your movie theater. God bless you. Every now and again, we're at church, and we just look up at the big screen and go, look, it's a movie theater. <laughs> Always playing the same thing. Looks like we're worshiping Jesus again. That's all he wants you to know. So the kids aren't laughing not funny. You get older and, and maybe you think of good news as you get, you get the job. Well, that's good news. I got the job. Or you get a raise, a promotion. That's good news. Man, you come home and you're like, I got a raise. I got a Or maybe you want to buy a house. And, and you're, you're, in these days, you have to write about 25 contracts before you get your house because they're competing, aren't they? But you lock in onto that one house and you, we got the house. They accepted the con. This is good news. For me, good news was when I heard a friend of ours was cancer-free. That was good news. When in 2003, I got down on one knee and I proposed to this beautiful, wonderful woman named Bridget Ann Dixon. Dixon now, Dixon, amen. Used to be Adams, no longer. It's not. You can call that patriarchal. You do whatever. She, it's a Dixon now. That's right. December 24, 2003, I proposed to her and she said, yes. And I said, good news, good news. Make a man out of me. Love you. 
to hear that my son, my second son, passed this test, and despite all of his forearm tattoos, which we protested, some of you had tattoos, no judgment, but we protested, don't get those tattoos on your forearms, and the military had just accepted this thing where they said you can't have tattoos, the sleeves and all that, and he, they still got him in, you know, and we were praying for him to get into the military, and he got in, you know, and then they shipped him off to Germany for three to four years. We weren't happy about that, but it was good news that he got into the military. We were excited about that. When my wife told me she was pregnant with our now 15-year-old daughter, Azariah, after three months before that, we had a miscarriage, that was good news. That was good news. I, I, ha- I don't cry much, but I, I was crying. That was good news. Amen. And I thought about how good news is best understood in the context of bad news or the absence of something that maybe we wanted. And when you think about all the scenarios I just told you, and when we think about, for example, we get the job, it's in the context of not having the job. We get the house, it's in the context of not having the house. You know, when we, it, it, every time you think of something that is good news, it, it is good news in the contrast of bad news, or it's in the contrast of something that you don't have. And I think when we look at the gospel of Jesus, we have to consider that the same is true, that for me, the gospel of Jesus is so good because I know and I'm well acquainted with the bad news. I know who I used to be. I know how much I needed him. I know how bad my sin was. I didn't have a little sin, friends. I had a lot of sin. Anybody with me on that today? I had a lot of sin in my life. I had depression in my life. I couldn't make myself better. I tried to make myself better. It worked for about a year. And then I realized I'm no good. I can't change myself. I can't make myself better. I have never believed that my righteousness is enough to stand before a holy God. I've never believed that. I've always shied away in those conversations. I've talked to a lot of people who have said to me, well, I'm a good person. And when I look at them and they say that, I'm like, well, you're not an honest one. Because your level of goodness is, is, a, is an isolated perspective. If I interviewed the people around your life, if you had a lot of people in your life, at some point I'm going to find somebody that isn't going to think that you're as good as you say you are. And let's just take into consideration the private status here. What it looks like when nobody else is looking. What it what it's really like, what we're really like when, when nobody else is around. I, I just want to say to you that, that the good news is good because of how much we needed it. It's not just a, a house that we get or a promotion that we get or, or a raise that we get or, or something like that. It's good news eternal. It's good news for all who come to Jesus in faith and repentance. It's, it's great news. I love this because it's open and available for everyone. Now, many don't see Christianity as good news. You talk to people out here in the world and you start to talk to them about Jesus. Today, the narrative is, is that Christians are hypocrites and, and we are representatives of Jesus. And so it somehow is going to stain his record when his record is unstained. He is a perfect one, but... When you ask people if Jesus is good news or Christianity is good news, they, they won't often say yes, many that are unbelievers. But we know that those who represent Jesus have not done so in a way that shows how good he really is. We are imperfect representatives of the Lord Jesus. And where that is the case, where we have misrepresented Jesus, may we be a people of repentance, amen? 
Because what we don't want as Christians is to get in the way of how good this news really is. What we do want is to get out of the way and to share and to show just how good our God is. Isn't God good? Isn't Jesus great? Fantastic, in fact. And so we don't want to be misrepresenting him. I've been told that uh, by people that don't believe in Jesus. And sometimes when people are deconstructing their faith or defecting from the faith, they'll say, well, uh, Christianity is, is, a, is a crutch. Sort of like, I don't, I don't need Christianity. I'm a, I'm a man or I'm a good person or I'm a woman. I'm, I'm fine. You know, Christianity is a crutch. And I'm like, right you are. You just don't know how crippled you are. <laughs> Come on, somebody. That was, that, that's, that's the reality of it. A person that could say, that Christianity is a crutch in the context of them thinking that they're okay doesn't, is not in touch with the bad news. So they can't see the good news because they don't, they don't understand sin. They don't understand the depths of sin, the power of sin. What put Jesus on the cross? What sent Jesus into our world so that he could take death in our place? They haven't yet come to understand it, but may the Holy Spirit reveal that to all those that we speak with. Amen. That the gospel of Jesus would be known and that people would come into a revelation of how crippled they are and find the crutch, the double crutch, Jesus Christ. The second thing we know from this text, verses two through four or five even, is that God sends messengers. This was such good news that God promised to send a messenger first to prepare the way for him as the Messiah. Look what it says here in verse two. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, Who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism or an immersion of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist and his diet was locusts and wild honey. Now this passage, the verse 2 here, it's a, it says from the Isaiah the prophet, but it actually represents three predictions, three prophecies from the Old Testament found in Exodus 22.30, Malachi 3.1, and Isaiah 43. These prophecies about John the Baptist show us that God's plan always and all along was to send a messenger to announce the way of the coming Messiah. And that message was make ready the way of the Lord. In ancient times, a king would send a messenger. This was very normal. They would send a messenger before the king would arrive to announce his arrival. There is one coming after me. John's role as a messenger, and he was a messenger. That was his role, was to announce the arrival of the coming king and to prepare the way. And one of the things that he said in order to do that was repent. Now, John was dressed in camel's hair and a leather belt, And I think that's a very interesting thing. It's sort of indicative of how people saw Elijah, very rugged, very hairy man. And we could talk about that for a moment. But the reality is, is that I don't know what camel's hair looks like, but I don't wear it. And I haven't personally seen it. I mean, just, I mean, maybe I have, but I don't remember. It's not a memento that I have in my office. Now I watch, I'm going to say this and somebody's going to bring me a coat with camel's hair. It seems like every time I say his comment like that, I end up with something, you know. Pastor Ben, here you go. So I love you, and, and somebody just wrote that down. And you're going to buy me a coat. I'm not going to wear it on stage, though. But what it tells me about John the Baptist 
is that John, while he didn't dress for success, he had the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Now, you think about this. Maybe Judea is 20 miles out from, from where all these people are, or the Jordan River is 20 miles out, 15 miles out from, from where the people came from. 15 to 20 miles out. They, they don't have cars. They walk. The people walk. Thousands of people walked to the Jordan River to listen to a man who did not have a microphone, to listen to a man that was not dressed for success. All John had was the anointing. John was a messenger. A messenger carries a message. It isn't about them. It isn't about what they look like, obviously, from John's picture here. It isn't about uh, their style. It's not about their preference. It's about their message. They're called to carry the message, prepare the way of the Lord. It doesn't matter what they are. It doesn't matter what they're like. It doesn't matter their personality. It doesn't matter what they dress like. What matters is if they're carrying the right message. Are you saying what you're supposed to say? That's what matters. And John here is saying what he's supposed to say. All these people are coming out to see him. A man preaching this under the anointing of the Spirit. Repent for the forgiveness of your sins. Come on down to the river. Come on down. Come on down to the river and get right with God. He's coming. The kingdom of God is at hand. He is coming. Repent. I mean, this message, when you think about it, is not the message that you always hear. Repentance can be sometimes misunderstood in the mouth of an angry preacher. And the, pr the presentation or the messenger can often get that wrong and misrepresent what's being said. May that not be the case for all of us. But the reality is, is that the message um, is what God wants it to be, is what God gives for it to be. As they come out, he's preaching. Thousands are hearing him. And the ones that are hearing him, many are on the bank and they're just judging but there's so many that are streaming down into the Jordan River, baptize me. I mean, this was an offensive message that he was preaching. He's preaching to the Jew. The Jew would be offended. Why would you tell me to get right with God in the way that you're suggesting? We have a way to do that. We go to the temple. We come before the priest. We bring the sacrifice. You're telling me to repent and to do so in this new prescribed way. It would be very offensive. But Jews were coming down and they were getting baptized. And they were confessing their sins publicly. And there were people, Pharisees and, and leaders, rulers, religious rulers, were standing on the bank like this, wondering what in the world is going on. There were Roman guards that were standing on the bank watching. Is this a, a revolution? What is happening right now? Who is this crazy cameled hair leather belt man that's got locusts kind of coming out of his mouth, you know? Who is this man preaching like this? I'll tell you what, he had an anointing that was undeniable. And as the church of Jesus Christ, what we want, friends, we want the anointing in every way back in the church, back in our hearts, back in our mouths, wherever we've lost it or wherever we don't have it, we pray for that anointing. Sometimes today, and I'm, I'm not here to bash anybody or anything, but I I've seriously considered this. So often today, churches and pastors and messengers, and you don't have to be on a stage to be a messenger. You don't have to have a microphone to be a messenger, but so often it becomes about something other than the message and what the message is about. It becomes about the camel's hair. It becomes about the dress. It becomes about the way, the personality, the style. So many churches, so many leaders, so many people fall. So many things fail because we get in the way 
of the king himself and the message at hand. But I'll tell you, when you stay true to the message that is often uncomfortable, a message that isn't often always shared today, but one that we must go back to, repent of your sins, change your thinking, change the way you're living. You don't have to say it in an angry way. You don't have to say it with fire coming out of your face. You don't have to say it. I cannot speak about repentance in a way that it does not affect and change me as well. I too am a brother in the Lord. We together are the family of God. The one that matters is Jesus. I don't matter in the equation. I matter, I mean, we matter as a family, but the message matters. Not the messenger, the message matters. Get the message right, amen. Get the message right. When you read your Bible, make sure you're reading what it means and what it says. Not just what we want it to say. Sometimes the truth of God will comfort us. Isn't that true? Sometimes the truth of God will confront us. But John the Baptist, he preached repentance of sin, and he died for that message. Do you know that he confronted King Herod, and he told him to repent for divorcing his wife and marrying his niece? And it would be later on that his head was literally taken for that reason. John was a man who was a messenger. He preached a message even to his own death. He was a man that stayed faithful to the message. Sometimes churches don't last or make it because they don't stay faithful to the message and the messenger becomes more important. That can never happen. Amen. And the same is for all of us. I would tell you this, to be a messenger of the Lord, what you need is the anointing. And as far as I can tell, when I read scripture, if you have the Holy Spirit, you have the anointing of God. Some of us might say, well, I'm not a messenger or a preacher of this. Doesn't matter. We all carry the same message, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. We speak of him and his goodness. We talk about the good news, but it's always in context of the bad news. You cannot stay in your sins and understand the good news properly. Isn't that the truth? You cannot stay in your sins and understand the good news properly. The Bible says, repent. John the Baptist preached it. Jesus preached repent. The apostle Peter, the apostle Paul, it was a consistent message throughout the New Testament. You cannot just believe in Jesus with your head and with your mind. You have to repent from your sins. We have to repent of our way of thinking and our way of life and our way of doing things. And we have to submit to the lordship of Jesus. It's his way of thinking. It's his way of doing things. We now subscribe to all of where he is going and what he is doing. Sometimes people will believe in their mind, but they will not repent. And when we don't repent, we will believe in Jesus and follow ourselves. And that's a scary thing, isn't it? It's a scary thing. God uses messengers to prepare people for Jesus. He will use you. You don't have to speak to many. You don't have to speak in a microphone. You don't need a degree. You don't need an audience. We need the anointing. And we must pray for the anointing again. Amen. I don't know what... Um, the scene must have looked like with John the Baptist. But man, I long for that anointing. Where the messenger didn't matter, but the message was everything. I long for that anointing. The last thing I'll say to you today is there are two baptisms. And we're going to talk more about this uh, the following weeks. Because it is very important that we understand the word baptism. And that there are more than one. It says here in the remaining verses, John says in the final verse, verse 8, I baptized you with water but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. As John prepared people for the coming Messiah, we call it John's baptism. We know there were other baptisms during that time. 
For example, when a non-Jewish person wanted to join the Jewish faith, they were required to undergo a proselyte baptism. And there were three things that were required to do that. You had to bring a sacrifice. If you were a male, you had to be circumcised. And you had to be baptized before three witnesses. And as you did that, it was a baptism that was self-administered in what's called a mikvah. Half of that was underground. And you had to go down into the mikvah. If you go to Israel, you'll see one. You had to go down underground, self-administer an immersion in water, a baptism of sorts. And you had to confess the God of Israel, Yahweh God. And this was a non-Jewish person becoming a part of the Jewish faith. So the Jew would see what John was doing. He was now baptizing people in the Jordan River for the forgiveness of their sins. This was offensive. John was offensive. His presentation was offensive. His baptism was offensive. But this would actually bring about the goal of the forgiveness of sins. And it begins what we understand as Christian baptism. When we baptize people in water, it's an outward sign of an inward reality. And as we do it, we identify with Christ's death as we go under the water. And we're identifying with Christ being raised as we come out. We're buried with Christ in his death and we're raised to new life. When we are baptized in water, it is an obedience to Jesus. And friends, I want to say to you today, it is more than just a ritual. It is more than just a good thing that we ought to do. It is more than just something Christians do because it's really important in the Christian tradition. There is something spiritual that is attached to baptism. Every principality and power has to take notice when a follower of Jesus walks into those waters and professes publicly, I identify with Jesus in his death and I am raised to new life with him. I am new because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. When a person does that, it puts everyone on notice. I am his. This is water baptism, but this is not the only baptism. There is also what John says, the baptism with the Holy Spirit. See, the word baptism... It means to be immersed, covered, and saturated. It is not a holy word in and of itself. It describes an event that is taking place. There are many baptisms. There are many immersions. In the book of Ephesians chapter 4, it says that there is one baptism. And he's talking about one faith. He's not saying there is only one. He's saying we are one in the faith. He's saying you're baptized into the body of Christ. Sometimes people think that is the baptism with the Holy Spirit. No, it's not. There are many baptisms. There are many immersions. When we come to Christ, we're immersed into the body of Christ. And we are by the Holy Spirit. But in Acts chapter 1, verse 4 through verse 8, Jesus tells the disciples to go and wait in Jerusalem until they receive that which the Father promised, the precious Holy Spirit. They would have understood this as the anointing. They would have understood this as the anointing. He says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. This is the baptism with the Holy Spirit. He's speaking to people that are already saved. They already have the Holy Spirit. But he's saying, you need power if you're going to be a witness. If you're going to be a messenger, you need power. Christianity is impossible without the power of the Holy Spirit there, are, there is more than one immersion. And he, here's how I'd like to close today. A lot of things being said. But the first is this. Is that as we read this passage, we recognize the gospel of Jesus is the greatest news. 
And so if anybody is here today and you do not know Jesus Christ, like you come, you've come, many of you, I know you, and I know you believe in Jesus, you love Jesus, you're, you're saved, you're walking with him, and you're born again, you have the spirit of God living in you, and I say amen to that. But if you're here and you, you don't believe in Jesus, or you're not sure, or you haven't given your life to Jesus, and if I ask you straightforwardly, do you believe in Jesus? Have you given him your life? Have you repented of your sins? say, what does that mean? Have you repented of following your way? And have you said, I'm following his way. I'm abandoning myself to following the way of Christ. It's him or it's nothing. Have you done that? Because that, the good news can only be understood when we abandon all that the bad news is attached to. We've got to let go of our life and give it to him. And when we do that, man, we are full of joy, joy, inexpressible, unspeakable. That's where the good news is experienced, understood, and often shared. If you haven't repented, or maybe today you need to freshly repent of of your way, not just saying maybe have you done wrong this week, everybody has, but are you following your way and not his way? Say, I'm a Christian, I believe in him, but have you turned your life over to him? completely. If you haven't done that today, I want to give you an opportunity to do that. And here's how we will do that. After the service, I want you to come up. I want you to walk from wherever you are. I want you to walk all the way up after everybody is dismissed. I want you to do that. Come and pray. There's nothing more important than you coming up and praying with one of us to give Jesus your life, to repent of your sin. Nothing is more important today, nothing, than you doing that. And the second is this. If, if you're here today and you have not been baptized with the Holy Spirit, You're saying, Ben, I see there's baptism in water. And if you haven't been baptized in water, come on up and sign up for baptism in water. Not because we want you to, but because the Bible teaches that this is for you. If you have not been baptized in water, don't wait. Don't push it off. Don't say, I'll sign up another day. Come down and sign up today. Let's read the Bible and live the Bible. Amen? Let's read the word of God and say, that's not just for them, but that's for me too. Come on up and sign up today. Pastor Ben, I want to get water baptized. I haven't done that yet. I believe in Jesus, but my time has come. Come on and sign up. We'll be up here. I'll, be, I'll wait with you. Amen? I'll wait. I'll be up here all, all, all afternoon. We got another service at 1130. I still I got to stay. So I'm going to be here. But if you haven't been baptized with the Holy Spirit, if you haven't received the power of the Holy Spirit, his release in your life to be a witness of Jesus, if you're not even sure if that happened, don't wait, don't push it off. Come on down today after the service, amen? I'm not gonna have you do it in in two minutes or one minute or raise your hand. I'm gonna have you come on down. That's how we're, we're gonna do it here at Northwest Church. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Join me as I pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel of Mark. We thank you for the message that it conveys. We thank you for the truth that it gives. And now as we read it, we pray that you would make it real in our lives. May we be a people of repentance. May we be a people that rejoice in the good news of Jesus Christ. That this is the good news. There's nothing greater. And may we be reminded that we're carriers, messengers of the good news. And that we need to submit our lives to you. And even for the rest of us that maybe haven't done, we have done that before, but today's a fresh day, a new day. Mercies are new today. And that we would do that freshly today. We repent of our sins. We repent of misrepresenting you to anybody if we've done that. We repent for not walking with you and maybe following our own ways, Lord. We want to follow your way and your way alone. And so today we ask you, would you align our hearts with you and with your glorious gospel and your path for our lives, that we too would be like John the Baptist, that we would prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. 
And I ask, Lord, for anybody here today that doesn't know you or hasn't been baptized in water or baptized with the Spirit, God, I pray that today would be that day. May the day, this be a day of commitment, a day of surrender. We thank you for it. Touch our hearts as we pray in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone said, amen and amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Ignite Global Ministries, please go to our website, igniteglobalministries.org. While there, check out our Immersion Discipleship School and the books Pastor Ben has written.